there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Good morning, Officer Howe. What's good about it? Toughen up, boy. A bit of stinging cold in the morning is good for the soul. Builds a man's character to get up and about after a winter squall. Take my word for it. That's easy for you to say, Bart. You get to saddle all cozy behind your desk all day. True enough. But you keep walking on your patrol and you'll keep the warm blood flowing. Hey, grab some coffee from the stove. Police. Ah, Dr. Steiner. Good morning to you. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Huh. I see. Well, we'll send a man right over. Uh, Good day, sir. What was that about? Your day ain't getting any better, boy. Doc's reporting a body over near Raby's Grocery. Better finish your coffee and be on your way. A body? That's the sergeant's beat, not mine. And Chenneville's home resting before tonight's festivities. That makes it your beat this morning. Dr. Steiner. Officer. Yes, thank heavens. Please hurry, this way. The others are with the body, through the servants' quarters. My God, what's happened here? There's so much blood. You made no mention of foul play over the phone. Calling from the grocery, I did not wish to offend the ears of the proprietress. Come, it's just a little further. She lies yonder, near the outhouse. It's... ghastly. In over twenty years of practice, I have never seen the like. She has been torn to pieces. I'd better call the sergeant. We're gonna need a lot of help. The mutilated body of Molly Smith, a young black servant girl, was discovered on the morning of December 31st, 1884, in Austin, Texas. The savagery of her murder shocked local residents, and the 19th century limitations of forensic science yielded few clues. And yet, this was only the beginning. And over the course of the next year, an escalating series of crimes in Austin would have both the working poor and the social elites cowering in their homes, fearing for their lives. The murderer struck late at night to claim his victims, even killing mothers while their children slept in the very same bed. As the crime wave went on, reporters from across the nation flocked to Austin, 
throwing accusations and stoking tensions between black workers and their white employers. The chaos and intrigue that followed would eventually include figures such as the noted writer William Sidney Porter, better known as O. Henry, as well as perhaps the most notorious serial murderer of all time, Jack the Ripper. The case of the servant girl annihilator rocked governments and spanned continents. But perhaps more importantly, the terrible aftershocks from the case have affected the lives of Austin's residents for well over a century and into the present day. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the servant girl annihilator. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. And if you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, let's return to the horrifying tale of the Servant Girl Annihilator. In 1884, Austin, Texas, was a city on the cusp of change. Functioning as the state capital, it was roughly four square miles and had a population of 20,000 residents. Passenger trains were bringing new arrivals at a steady pace. Doctors and lawyers, merchants and laundrymen, all looking for fame and fortune. One local entrepreneur, Gus Barnett, even built a roller coaster that he claimed was exactly like the one at New York's Coney Island. This new coaster was the talk of the town. And why wouldn't it be? Everybody loves roller coasters. Speak for yourself, Wendy, but you're right. The ride was popular, morale was high, and the city as a whole was ready to emerge from a western frontier town into a cosmopolitan urban center. So the gruesome murder of Molly Smith must have been quite a shock to the system. No doubt that it was. While investigating the scene that morning, police learned more from Tom Chalmers, one of the men who had discovered the body about the circumstances of the stormy night before. Help me, Mr. Tom! Walter? Mr. Tom, for God's sake, help me. Somebody's nearly killed me. What's happened? Walter, why are you bleeding? Molly, I can't find Molly. Chalmers and his wife were staying at the home of his brother-in-law, William Hall. The young black man who had awakened him was Walter Spencer, a laborer at the local brickyard and the boyfriend of the hall's cook and maid, Molly Smith. Spencer claimed that someone had attacked him while he was asleep in bed next to Molly, leaving him unconscious. And now that Molly was nowhere to be found, the attacker must have done something to her. But Chalmers was unwilling to go out into the stormy winter night and look for a black man's missing girlfriend. How inhumane. Mm, Yeah, sure was. Sadly, it was a different time. But black or white, she was still a missing person out there. 
Too true, and we'll have a lot more to say on the racial tensions present in this case later on. But for now, the fact remains that Chalmers first helped to bandage the gashes on Spencer's head. Then he escorted him out of the house, saying that a search could wait until daylight. And it was just after daylight when a servant for a neighboring house stepped into the back alley to collect firewood. The servant saw what at first he thought was a dead animal, but taking a closer look, he recognized human legs. His screams roused the surrounding neighbors, including Chalmers and Dr. Steiner, who then volunteered to place the phone call to the police from Ravy's grocery store across the street. Officer William Howe, the first responder to the horrifying scene, found Molly Smith's body in the alley, lying on her back. Her head was nearly split into two halves, and she had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and abdomen. She was lying in a pool of so much blood, it was said that she appeared to be floating in it. Horrible. Yes, it was. And Howe knew that the most experienced investigator at the Austin Police Department would be needed on the case. Sergeant John Cheneville. Cheneville was the number two man in the department in his late 30s and carried a broad, strong build. Raised in New Orleans, he had worked as a cabin boy on a Confederate ship during the Civil War. In the 1870s, he moved to Austin and joined the police department. Ronnie O'Johnny, as they called him chased after troublemakers, broke up saloon brawls, and maintained a network of informants around Austin to keep him apprised of disreputable characters. And because Cheneville's voice was known to be so loud and demanding, he was asked to be the auctioneer in the city market on Saturday mornings. This Cheneville sounds like quite a character. Well, he does seem a bit rough around the edges, but isn't that exactly who you'd want chasing after hardened criminals? Good point, but the reality is that as hardened a veteran as John Cheneville was, even he was unprepared for what awaited him on that winter morning. This right here is a bloody damn awful mess. Yes, it is. The body's just outside, Sergeant. Give me a moment, Sonny. There's plenty to take in in these quarters. See the furniture knocked over? Mirror's broken. And the bed. The sheets and pillows are soaked with blood. It's formed a puddle on the floor. And here, at the foot of the bed, an axe stained with blood. Probably our murder weapon. While Sergeant Cheneville was an old hand at chasing criminals, he had little experience at investigating homicides. The murders he had previously investigated were usually bar brawls that had gotten out of hand, not premeditated killings. Usually all Cheneville had to do when he arrived on a scene was to retrieve the smoking gun or the bloody knife from the killer's hand and escort him to the jail. But this time, there was no killer waiting to be arrested. Forensic tools had yet to be invented. They hadn't yet discovered how to study blood spatter or how collecting hairs and fibers from a victim could help identify a killer. While human blood could be distinguished from animal blood under a microscope, modern blood typing did not yet exist. There was no way to distinguish one person's blood from another. Likewise, no system of fingerprinting was in place. But what investigators did look for were handprints or footprints around a crime scene. What horrid work was done here. That poor, poor girl. As you can see, there aren't clear prints around the body. And if there were, all these fellas having a look at her already destroyed them. No, Sonny, nothing to see here. Better get the dogs. At the time, foot or shoe prints could be preserved as evidence by taking measurements. Sometimes they would cast a mold of the prints using plaster of Paris. But in the case of Molly's murder, Cheneville could only rely on another tool, his two bloodhounds. 
Now, at first, you might dismiss the idea of using dogs to investigate a crime scene. But bloodhounds aren't just any dogs. Bloodhound noses contain approximately 230 million olfactory cells, or scent receptors. That's 40 times the number that we humans have. Well, that greatly enhanced sense of smell allows the bloodhound's brain to form an odor image from the cocktail of breath, sweat, and skin scents that lodge in the dog's receptors. This image that's created is much more detailed than, say, a photograph would be for us. Not only that, but once this image is formed, a bloodhound will track it relentlessly. There were reports of bloodhounds tracking scents for over 130 miles. Oh, that's amazing. Mm, absolutely. Which makes the fact that Sergeant Cheneville's bloodhounds found no trace of Molly Smith's murderer so disturbing. They found no trace at all? None. The only scent they found was Molly's own blood. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Without any real leads to Molly's murder, suspicions turned to her boyfriend, Walter Spencer. But wasn't he attacked himself? Didn't he ask Tom Chalmers to help in locating her? That's all true. And it wasn't long before Chenneville and the police dismissed Walter as the attacker because his behavior was not that of a guilty man. In addition to his actions on the night of the crime, witnesses reported that Walter and Molly had a peaceful relationship, and Walter had no criminal record. But this questioning led Chenevelle to an ex-boyfriend of Molly Smith named William Lem Brooks. Brooks had met Molly in Waco, where they had both grown up. They were together for several years before she left Waco and came to Austin to start a new life for herself. Brooks followed Molly to Austin, but by the time he had arrived in the city, Molly was already involved with Walter Spencer. Upset at this news, Brooks had apparently tried to start a fight with Walter. Hearing this story, Sergeant Cheneville and his officers rushed to locate Brooks and found him in the shanty of his new girlfriend. But when questioned about his whereabouts during the murder, Brooks had an alibi. He had spent the evening at a dance at Sand Hill, a meeting hall on the city's east side, two miles from the hall residence where the attack occurred. It appeared the investigation had hit a dead end. Here was a jealous ex-lover, someone with a potential motive to attack William and Molly, but apparently he couldn't have done it. Cheneville was unwilling to let his only decent suspect slip away, and so he had Brooks arrested for suspicion of murder. Which, it's important to note, was not the same as being arrested for murder. It was simply that police wanted to keep him in custody while the investigation continued. And ultimately, nothing came of it. Less than a month later in February, Brooks was released due to lack of further evidence. For a time, the investigators were stumped. Who could have committed such a grisly murder? And why? Was the violence over, or would they strike again? And then, in early March, a series of mysterious assaults began. Is somebody there? Oh, goodness. One night... A young servant girl, recently immigrated from Germany, awoke to find what she described as a ghost standing at the foot of her bed. Who are you? What do you want? Your money or your life. Good heavens, child. Are you all right? He's gone. He's gone. 
The assailant wasn't caught, but fortunately, the young victim suffered nothing more than a cut on her scalp and a bad scare. But a mere four nights later, there was another incident. A black cook was awakened by a violent rattling of the locked door to her servants' quarters. When she looked out the window, no one was there. An hour later, in a nearby neighborhood, two young black women were awakened by the rattling of a doorknob. When one of the women opened the door to their quarters to investigate, she was grabbed from behind. Help! Help me! The assailant let her go, and the two servant women spent the rest of the night in their employer's kitchen. But eerily, when they returned to their quarters the next morning, they found that someone else had been there. A lamp was lit that had been dark when the women fled to the kitchen, and their clothes and bedding were thrown in the middle of their room. The intruder had evidently returned to their room while the women were in the main house, just to tear their room apart. Now that's creepy. Two nights after that, an intruder broke into another servant's quarters attached to a local dressmaker's shop and assaulted the housekeeper. According to reports, the attacker tore off her covers and struck her several times upon the head and face before vanishing as quickly as he came. Have you noticed a familiar pattern? Other than the late-night creep factor, the attacker strikes his victims on the head. Right. Molly Smith and Walter Spencer, the German girl, and the housekeeper were all struck on the head. And these weren't all the incidents that were occurring. Austin, like many growing cities, was experiencing an overall increase in crime. But much of the other crimes around Austin were thefts. These midnight intruders seem more interested in attacking or frightening the servant women than in taking any of their money or belongings. Well, who did the police think was responsible for these attacks? Well, remember how I said we'd return to the racial tensions present in this case? I remember. The prevailing theory was that these midnight invasions were being perpetrated by a group, and I'm quoting here from a newspaper at the time, of bad blacks. Specifically young black men. That's right. In 1885, Austin had approximately 3,500 black citizens, or about one-fifth of the population. Many of the city's black adults were uneducated, with the men finding work in common labor and the women in domestic service. Often, they lived in servants' quarters in their employers' backyards. The exact kind of dwellings that the attacks, including Molly Smith's murder, had occurred in. Black people in Austin had opened their own shops and churches in their neighborhoods. There were three state-funded, quote, colored schools, educating up to 400 students. In many ways, conditions had improved considerably from the immediate post-Civil War Reconstruction era. But Austin's newspapers were frequently publishing white residents' complaints about black residents, claiming they were not as, quote, deferential as their predecessors. Oh, in other words, they no longer acted like slaves. Such bias meant that these men were being blamed for crimes simply for being young and not being white. Here's an actual published editorial from the Daily Statesman. There is no telling if they are permitted to idle about a town of this size what they will do finally. There's no doubt, but they will resort to theft. And then it is but a small step to murder. And that meant that such, quote, bad blacks made convenient scapegoats for the midnight attacks. But, Wendy, none of the servant women who had been attacked thus far had gotten a good look at their attacker. That's right. A couple of the women did say that they believed it was a black man who had attacked them, but they weren't certain. And another woman claimed that the man who attempted to break into her quarters was, quote, yellow, 
meaning of light black skin. And strangely, one woman claimed that her attacker had painted his skin in blackface, like in a minstrel show. And the German girl? Despite her scare, she believed that her ghost was a white man. No joke. Yet, despite these conflicting reports, the city's leaders, who, with the exception of one alderman or councilman, were all white, could not believe that white men would terrorize servant women. Therefore, the blame remained on black men. To address the ongoing threat to the public safety, Mayor John Robertson and the city alderman debated which course of action to take. The head of the Austin Police Department, Marshal Grooms Lee, was a 29-year-old political appointee. When pressed, he suggested that more police officers were needed. He stated verbatim, That I have too few officers with which to properly guard the city. Every man who will give the subject the least attention is bound to admit. Lee had been reading law enforcement manuals that suggested police departments should have at least one officer for every 500 inhabitants. For Austin's population, that equated to roughly 34 policemen. At the time of the attacks in March 1885, the department employed only 12 officers, with only four officers patrolling at night. But Mayor Robertson and the aldermen objected to Lee's proposal to expand his staff, citing budget concerns. If we did such a thing, the city's budget would be swamped and taxes would have to be raised. No doubt the voters would throw us out next election. Suppose if, instead of hiring more officers, the city were to offer a $500 reward to anyone who shoots a black man invading a servant's quarters. Hell, give it to a woman who plugs her own assailant with buckshot. <laughs> what if we deputize some of our white men to patrol our neighborhoods as night watchmen? At least until Ronnie or Johnny catches the responsible parties? There's an idea. It was decided to hire a dozen men, mostly friends of the aldermen who needed a little pocket money, to patrol the white neighborhoods. They were paid $2 a night, and by the last week of March, the temporary policemen were on the streets. Soon, Chenneville and his men had arrested two black men, both of whom protested that they were innocent of any wrongdoing. Nevertheless, the attack stopped for a little while. The next month was relatively uneventful, and the temporary policemen were disbanded on April 27th. But two nights later, the attacks began again when a German servant girl was grabbed from her bed and thrown to the floor. Later, that same evening, a man broke into a cook's quarters and grabbed another woman from the bed, holding a razor at her throat and threatening to kill her if she screamed. At that point, the cook and another woman returned to the house and frightened the attacker away before anyone was harmed. But there was one interesting wrinkle to this incident. The women insisted that the man was wearing a woman's dress. <laughs> this case just keeps getting weirder. This new wave of attacks motivated the arrests of five more men by Sergeant Cheneville and his officers. Ooh, ouch! Hoping to get them to break, the officers chained the men to the floor of the local calaboose and subjected them to brutal examinations, as one of the newspapers put it. But no one confessed to any of the attacks on the servant women. Nonetheless, the attacks did stop for a week or so, but on May 6th, the servant girl annihilator claimed a second victim. Now stick your head under your pillow and go back to sleep. No peeking. If I catch you peeking, I'll kill you. You understand? Uh-huh. Don't you tell nobody, neither. I'll be on my way to St. Louis on the first train. 
That boy you just heard was the seven-year-old son of Eliza Shelley, the 31-year-old servant of the Johnson family and the mother to three boys. Eliza's son had been sleeping at the foot of the bed that he shared with his mother and two younger siblings when he was shaken awake by a man in a mask. Specifically, the man was wearing a white rag over his face with two holes cut for his eyes. The strange scene that you just heard then followed, and the boy went back to sleep. But waking at first light, the boy and his two brothers discovered an awful truth. Their mother had been murdered while they slept right next to her. How is that even possible? Why didn't the kids wake up? The police didn't know. The assumption was that the killer must have incapacitated Eliza while she was still sleeping and moved her from the bed before killing her. That's absolutely horrific. I can't even imagine it. No, neither can I. The children's screams alerted the Johnsons, who notified the police. Hello, Sergeant. She's on the floor, wrapped in the bedspread. Mother Mary. Her brain's oozing from an axe wound to the skull. Knife wounds all down her body. And what's this strange hole on her forehead? Looks like an ice pick was jabbed between her eyes. A terrible sight. Are these her two trunks knocked open here? Yes, Sergeant. We asked the boy. Looks like the killer went through them. Just a bloody awful mess. I'd better speak with the boy. Now, when Cheneville heard Eliza's son tell his story of what had happened, he could hardly believe it. It sounds preposterous. A masked man breaks into their home, murders their mother right next to them, asks for their money, and tells him he's going to St. Louis? And yet, when a reporter for the San Antonio Express asked the boy to later repeat his story several times, he did so without any variation. Speaking to Eliza Shelley's employer, Dr. Lucian Johnson, only muddled the apparent motives for the murder. It makes no sense to murder Eliza for her money. Not when she only had few paltry cents to her name, and I have rather an expensive coin collection sitting in my house just a few yards away. Did she have any enemies? Anyone who'd want to hurt her? I know of no one who disliked her. She was very faithful to her husband and was patiently waiting for him to serve out his incarceration. A year prior, Eliza's husband had been sentenced to five years in a state prison for stealing a horse. I simply could not imagine who could have done such a terrible violence to so sweet a soul as hers. She did not deserve to die in such a manner, regardless of her race. Again, the police found very little evidence. Sergeant Cheneville's bloodhound still refused to take up a scent. The only real clue the dogs uncovered were large, broad, barefoot tracks just outside Eliza's cabin. This led Cheneville and the police to look for a barefoot black man, and they soon arrested a shoeless teenager named Andrew Williams who lived nearby. But Andrew was later described as being half-witted, and his footprints did not match the measurements of those found in the Johnson's yard. A fervor descended over Austin, stoked by the local newspapers. A mother butchered in the presence of her children. The foul fiends keep up their wicked work. The theory that a black gang was behind the assaults and killings was again running all over town. The young drugstore clerk, William Sidney Porter, who would one day become better known as the famous writer O. Henry, wrote a letter to a friend, giving the gang their nickname. Town is fearfully dull, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively during the dead hours of night. If it weren't for them, items of interest would be very scarce. In Austin's black neighborhoods, however, 
there was little talk of a gang. Rather, rumors began to swirl that a demon or an evil one had come to Austin, drawing from the tradition of slave-era folk magic. Elderly residents created charms for the servant women to carry to keep them safe from the evil one. And still, the women didn't feel safe. They began to barricade their doors at night with furniture, desperate to keep the killer out of their homes. The investigation seemed to be going nowhere, but on May 10th, five days after Eliza Shelley's murder, Cheneville finally got a break. An informant told Cheneville that a young black man named Ike Plummer had had a brief romantic fling with Eliza earlier that year while her husband was incarcerated. Supposedly, on the day of the murder, Plummer had passed by the Johnson home to get Eliza to loan him some money. On hearing this story, Cheneville quickly had Plummer arrested. But any relief was short-lived. No one else would corroborate the informant's story. And although Plummer did have a criminal record for vagrancy, character witnesses insisted that he lacked a vicious disposition. Ultimately, the evidence didn't fit. No bloody clothes were found in Plummer's shanty, and his footprints also didn't match those found outside of Eliza's cabin. The police had hit another dead end. And two weeks later, the Annihilator struck again. Mein Gott! It's the cook, Irene! Look, her arm! It's nearly severed in two! On the evening of May 22nd, Robert Wireman, a shoemaker, ran outside his home across the street from a local beer hall to find his family's cook, Irene Cross, lying on the ground. In addition to the severe wound on her arm, she had a long, horizontal gash around her head, as though someone had tried to scalp her. She's trying to speak. No, Irene, do not speak. Save your strength. Here, let's lift her into the house. There we go. There now. Let's wrap these wounds while the doctor is fetched. Who was it? Who did this to you? But Irene's wounds were too severe, and she was unable to answer any questions. Irene held on for another couple of days, but she finally passed in the early morning hours of May 25th. And, yet again, investigators only had the word of a child to go by. In this instance, it was Irene's 12-year-old nephew. He described how he awoke from sleep in one of the two rooms in the servant's cabin to see a man brandishing a knife. The man told the boy that he was not there to hurt him and ordered him to remain quiet. The man then entered Irene's room and, after a couple minutes, ran back out the door. When asked to describe the man, the nephew's testimony was bizarre. The boy insisted his aunt's attacker was a, and I'm quoting, big, chunky Negro in a brown, wide-brim hat, ragged coat, blue shirt, and black pants rolled up over his bare feet and ankles. A remarkably complete description for a frightened child who only had a few seconds to look at the man in almost total darkness. Had the boy made up parts of his story? Had the police fed him what to say? The answers were unclear. What is clear is that fears of the, quote, bad blacks were stoked once more, and Sergeant Cheneville and his men renewed their search for more suspects. The situation became so dire that black men would walk to and from their homes with their arms held wide to show that they weren't carrying any weapons. And to ward off Cheneville's bloodhounds, the men would cover themselves with asafetida, a strong-smelling putty made from tree roots, vegetables, herbs, and spices to throw off their scent. 
Worse, by now the servant women of Austin were so afraid that several chose to quit their jobs and moved away. Others chose to sleep on the floors of their employers' houses rather than in their own beds. But just as before, the attacks did quiet down. From the end of May through July, the streets of Austin were once again relatively peaceful. Until the end of August, when the fear of the servant girl annihilator would reach new heights and bring its first embarrassing scandal. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, the story continues. In the early morning hours of August 30th, 1885, young Austin businessman Valentine Weed was awakened by moans coming from his kitchen. His servant woman, Rebecca Ramey, was sleeping there on the floor with her 11-year-old daughter, Mary. They, like so many other serving women around the city, were still too afraid to sleep in their own quarters due to the Annihilator's attacks. They believed that staying inside the main house would keep them safe. But unfortunately, that wasn't true. Weed found Rebecca in the kitchen. She was on the floor, on her hands and knees, moaning, blood flowing from her left temple and part of her forehead caved in. She had been clubbed. Weed summoned a neighbor to help search his property, and together they found her young daughter Mary in the outhouse. She was lying on the floor, still alive, and blood oozing from her nose and ears. Both Dr. Johnson, the same physician who had employed Eliza Shelley, and Sergeant Cheneville were called for assistance. The girl's still alive, Doc. For now, yes. But there's nothing to be done. Like the wound on Eliza, it appears her attacker used a slender rod, like an ice pick and jammed it into her ear canal, piercing the brain. Can she talk? I don't believe so, no. And the other ear canal was also violated, piercing the other side of her brain. Essentially, she's been lobotomized. Shortly before dawn, Mary breathed her last. And again, the police found little evidence to go on. Sergeant Cheneville's bloodhounds did catch a scent from a set of footprints near the outhouse, and a black vagrant named River Bottom Tom was arrested. But when pressured under another of the sergeant's examinations, Tom maintained his innocence. The investigation was still stuck at square one. But the public was being whipped up into a frenzy. Newspapers all over Texas were now running stories about the Annihilator's murders. Austin's elections would be held in early December, and Mayor Robertson knew that his political future was on the line. Unconvinced by Sergeant Cheneville's brute methods and Marshal Lee's ineffective leadership, he reached out to the Noble Commercial Detective Agency, based out of Houston. The Noble Agency, owned by C.M. Noble, a former sheriff, and John Morris, a former marshal of the Houston Police Department, modeled itself after the legendary Pinkerton National Detective Agency based out of Chicago. You may be familiar with the Pinkertons. Ah, the eye that never sleeps. The Pinkertons had a wide reputation going after infamous outlaws like Jesse James, and the noble agency promoted themselves as a Pinkerton affiliate. In reality, this was nothing but an exaggeration. They had no contact with the Pinkertons whatsoever. But such promotion was getting them a lot of work, as well as the attention of Mayor Robertson. He requested the assistance of one of the Noble's six detectives, a former New Orleans police captain named Mike Hennessy. Hennessy had the reputation of an experienced tracker, and Robertson was impressed enough with him that he convinced the Austin City Alderman to pay him $10 a day, plus expenses, to find those responsible for the murders. 
Captain Hennessy arrived in Austin on September 9th with two assistants and set to work interviewing the surviving victims. At night, they donned disguises and eavesdropped in local saloons trying to rustle up clues. It wasn't long before they were drawing attention to themselves. Hennessy enjoyed the spotlight and made promises that the killers would be caught shortly. But as days turned to weeks, little or no substantive progress was made in the case. On the last weekend of September, Hennessy decided to make a brief return to Houston on personal business. And that's when all hell broke loose. First, on the night of Saturday, September 27th, two servant women were accosted by a man who threatened to kill them both. The women screamed and luckily the man fled. However, the following night, the victims would not be so lucky. W.B. Dunham, the publisher of a Texas legal journal, was awakened by a muffled cry from his servants' quarters. At first, he thought that his cook, Gracie Vance, and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, were arguing. But he later heard a groan. Startled, he grabbed a pistol and went into the yard to investigate. Good God. Mr. Dunham! We're all dead! The young woman who stumbled out to meet Dunham was Lucinda Body, a young servant girl who, along with another girl, was also staying with Gracie and Orange. She was bleeding from a head wound. Lie down on the steps, girl. Easy does it. Dunham, did you hear it too? Yes, there's devilry afoot. I've already phoned police. Sergeant's on his way. We'd best check the shanty. Follow me, Henry. Dunham, along with Henry Duff, his next-door neighbor, entered the servant's shanty to find a bloody scene. Orange Washington was dead with two head wounds, lying face down on the floor in a pool of his own blood. A bloody axe was beside him. And the other girl, Patsy Gibson, was barely alive, lying on her side and also bleeding from a head wound. But there was no sign of Dunham's cook, Gracie. Be quick, Connor. Perhaps we can yet catch the fiend. After you, Sergeant. Uh, uh, What is this? Mother Mary, that's a girl. It was Gracie. She was soaked in blood. On the ground beside her was a brick covered with blood and bits of gore. It had been used to viciously beat her in the face, smashing her nose, her cheeks, her jaws, and even her eyes. The doctor who later examined her corpse described her face as being like jelly. Curiously, there was also a beautiful silver face watch wrapped around her wrist, unblemished. The two officers paused briefly to take in their grisly find, but then... Officers, look! There he goes! Halt! In the name of the law! The policeman fired, hoping to hit whoever was fleeing from them, but no one was found. The killer, once again, had escaped. Reconstructing what had happened, the police determined that the intruder had entered the shanty and hit all four occupants in the head with an axe. Perhaps Orange had struggled and the attacker hit him again, killing him with a second blow. The killer then carried Gracie outside, over the Dunham's back fence, and into the neighbor's yard before beating her to death with the brick. News of this newest brutal double murder spread through Austin, drawing large crowds to the Dunham home. The two survivors, Lucinda and Patsy, were taken to the city-county hospital's Negro ward to recuperate. Soon the police learned that a black man named Doc Woods had earlier courted Gracie and was upset when she rejected him in favor of Orange. 
Woods was taken into custody, but the owner of the cotton farm at which he worked corroborated Woods' alibi. The owner confirmed that Woods hadn't left the farm because he had seen him both late the previous night and early that morning. But the most bizarre element of the crime was revealed when John Robinson, the owner of a dry goods store, arrived at the police department with his Swedish servant girl. The girl claimed that she now slept in Robinson's house for safety, only returning to her quarters during daylight hours to change clothes. That morning, she had returned to her quarters to discover that someone had broken in and thrown her clothes and bedding all over the room. The girl had gone through the mess and realized that one item was missing. A silver, open-faced watch, given to her by her father in Sweden. The police showed the girl the watch recovered from Gracie's body, and the girl exclaimed that it was indeed hers. But the girl had no idea how her watch ended up on Gracie's wrist. She didn't even know who Gracie Vance was. The police were baffled. They aren't the only ones. Why would the killer break into the Swedish girl's room, steal her watch, then head over to the Dunham's home and commit his murders there? And why would he then leave the watch on Gracie's wrist? Was the killer taunting the police, letting them know that there was nothing they could do to stop him? It was beginning to seem more and more likely that the Austin police were dealing with someone far more sinister than a band of roving thugs. Something far more cruel and evil. Captain Hennessy of the Noble Commercial Detective Agency soon returned to Austin. He was quickly filled in on what had happened. And within only a couple of days, Hennessy announced a break in the case. He claimed that an informant, a teenager named Jonathan Trigg, had witnessed a man named Oliver Townsend threatened to murder Mary Ramey. Townsend was black and a known chicken thief. He was among the suspects who had been rounded up earlier by Sergeant Cheneville after Mary's murder and interrogated, but Townsend had insisted on his innocence. Hennessy also claimed that he had questioned Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson at the hospital, and that they had confirmed that Doc Woods had been at Gracie's quarters just before the attack. But the local press had already begun to regard Hennessy with suspicion due to the lack of progress he'd made on the case. They uncovered that Trigg worked at the same hotel where the noble detectives were staying in Austin, and it seemed likely that Hennessy had persuaded him to tell this story. More damningly, the chief physician at the hospital confirmed that both Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson were still incapacitated from their wounds. They could not have answered Hennessy's questions. By mid-October, the Noble Agency's credibility was so tarnished that Mayor Robertson and the city aldermen terminated their contract, and Hennessy and his assistants left in disgrace. The failure of the Noble detectives and the lack of any sort of closure over the past year was taking its toll on the city of Austin. And with elections just around the corner in November, Mayor John Robertson was under tremendous political pressure to show progress on the murder investigation. With no real leads to move forward, the investigation instead looked back. Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of the first victim, Molly Smith, was indicted for her murder on November 22, 1885. But didn't the police already say that they believed he was innocent? They did, but Walter was tried that December. But the servant girl annihilator was still out there. And soon he was going to commit his most audacious crime yet. A woman has been chopped to pieces. It's Mrs. Hancock on Water Street. 
Soon the killer would turn from the servants to their masters. The crimes would expose a scandalous affair that would rock Texas politics. And the attacks, as well as the search for suspects, would spread all over the state. Eventually forming a connection to London and the Jack the Ripper murders. Possibly the most infamous murders of all time. It's safe to say that the Annihilator's reign of terror was far from over. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the Servant Girl Annihilator. Thank you for listening. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Unsolved Murders is written by Aaron Thomas and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Kenna McEnroe, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, and Greg Polson. Mm-hmm.